This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have a really interesting episode, unlike any that we've ever done. We're talking about the CFO's dilemma and how do you achieve mission and margin with value-based payment? We have two guests today on our show. We have Francois DeBrant, Senior Vice President for Commercial Business Development for Signify Health, who is an expert in episodes of care and value-based payment. He's worked for years implementing these programs with employers, providers, and health plans. And then we have Joe Pfeiffer, president and CEO of the Healthcare Financial Management Association that has 50,000 members and is the nation's leading membership organization of healthcare finance executives and leaders. Daniel, I'm just so excited about this episode and, and really trying to get the right conversation about how do we tackle value-based care through the lens of financial management. Eric, I completely agree. You nailed it on the head. It's unlike any other episode. Here we've got a leader in value-based care talking with the CFO, and we know this is a challenging dynamic. And you get these two together, and they're talking about how do you achieve this mission but still maintain a margin. And it's it's a perfect yin-yang dynamic that's being represented in this conversation today. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy it. I agree, Daniel. And it's also a warm conversation between two great friends that have known each other for decades that really have the same passion, but different areas of expertise. So I'm so excited to bring this to our listeners this week. So let's go ahead and hear from them as they join us, Francois and Joe, in the Race to Value. Francois and Joe, welcome to Race to Value. It's so great to have you today. Well, thank you. Yep. Thanks for having us. Well, we couldn't be more excited to have you both on the show, and I wanted to have you both on because together you can discuss how healthcare organizations can best position themselves for value-based payment without going bankrupt in the process. I mean, this whole analogy that we have, and I know you've heard it, everyone talks about it, it's getting a little bit cliche at this point, but we have these two canoes for balancing fee-for-service and value. 
and the tools that are used to optimize reimbursement in the two worlds of FFS and BBC, they're often diametrically opposed. Francois, you're the leading expert in designing and implementing episodes of care programs for employers, providers, and health plans. And Joe, you're the expert in healthcare financial management. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about today, and I'm looking forward to seeing how our listeners can have better clarity on how to think in terms of balancing FFS and BBC so they can make the best decision for their organization and positioning for the future. So let's talk about positioning for the future. And I really think this next decade is going to be critical to the success or failure of the value movement. In the 2020s, it's going to require a new value-based care strategy that's going to move from this short-term focus on testing these new payment models to having a more of a long-term focus that's on expanding the models, uh, especially those that are most likely to generate substantial savings and improve quality. To that end, there was this report released just last month from the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at Penn, which was titled The Future of Value-Based Payment, a Roadmap to 2030. And it outlines this new direction for the federal government to take over this next decade to fully complete the transition of the healthcare system for value and reducing health disparities and really focusing on value over volume. And Francois, I saw that you wrote a blog post recently about this report, and you talked about how it could help us make sense of the last decade of APM experimentation, and it offers us an experience-based path forward. And I'll just read a, a quote uh, briefly from your blog. You wrote that following this proliferation of APMs in the last decade, you said sometimes in the enthusiasm of sowing a thousand seeds, we forget that the overabundance of a crop is as much of a problem as no crop at all. That's especially true when the seeds from different crops become entangled, an analogy that's really applicable to what has happened with the proliferating and unmanageable set of alternative payment models supervised by CMMI. So Francois, I thought, you know, if you could provide your perspective on the current state of value-based care and the track record of CMS and the CMMI payment models. And Joe, I'd love to hear your perspective also on the future of publicly financed healthcare and where you see value-based care really positioned for the future. How should healthcare organizations continue to balance these two, two canoes of FFS and VBC over the next decade? The federal government through the institution of uh, CMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, has done a lot. And 2020 is very different than 2010. Uh, a decade ago, when CMMI started, uh, the then evidence on the effectiveness of uh, different types of alternative payment models was incredibly scarce. We, we knew some stuff in the private sector. We knew that reference pricing worked. We knew that giving consumers incentives to seek out higher value providers worked. We didn't really know a whole heck of a lot about what worked from the provider's perspective. What types of or combinations of alternative payment models would drive the organization to really focus on practice pattern improvements, uh, more rationalization of use of resources, clear focus on optimizing patient outcomes, et cetera. But 10 years later, with uh, the uh, launch of a large variety of alternative payment models by CMS over that decade, I do think that there has been good evidence on the types of models that work. 
And the analogy to the seeds and the sowing was partially a reflection on the ability uh, to keep with that analogy, to be able to separate out the wheat from the chaff. And I say that because the method used by the federal government and Medicare in particular to make that determination relies on a set of evaluations of alternative payment models. And the evaluations to date have had a tendency to make inferences about the effectiveness of a model. So the LDI report, the report that was recently published by the Leonard Davis Institute, I think did a good job in explaining that there is strong evidence about the effectiveness of certain models. And there's also good evidence that some of the implementation challenges that CMI has had has given some of these models a lukewarm backend evaluation, but more linked to the implementation than the model itself. So as we look at the next 10 years, in order to help provider organizations make that decision about whether you wanna stay on the dock or jump fully on the canoe, you cannot reasonably have dozens upon dozens of different models that you expect these organizations to understand, adopt, and adapt to. It needs to be thinned out. And that is in large part what that report from the Leonard Davis Institute did. And I know Joe's going to get into it because when you're leading a, a provider organization in particular in the position of a chief financial officer, you have to be cognizant of the resources that you're expending on anything. And if you are subjected to a large number of different programs with risk structures and conditions of participations, et cetera, it diffuses completely uh, your ability to focus, your ability to make resource allocations, et cetera. So the LGI report, I think appropriately said, there are models that CMI has implemented that do work. There are issues with a lot of the implementation of those models, but we have learned a lot from those issues and we know now how to better implement them. And uh, there is a pathway forward which calls for culling, thinning the set that exists so that the provider organizations can better focus and make more informed decisions. I'd like to start with the, you know, the really the most global level of reaction to your question, Eric, because you're talking about, you know, my perspective for the next, you know, next decade. And I think not to state the obvious, but I think that's that's really important. We're seeing the implications where we've spent our money as a society. And, you know, everybody knows the comparisons of what percent of GDP we spend on healthcare in this country versus others. And, you know, as we're talking now, we're talking about, and then the debate is starting in Washington, D.C. about a, not just a stimulus package, but a, a infrastructure plan. And the, and the argument being, we have underinvested in our country for, for a generation. Well, my head goes exactly to why have we underinvested in our infrastructure in this country? Because <laughs> we're spending so much money on healthcare compared to other countries. Now, that's probably a gross oversimplification, but I think that's more right than wrong. And where I'm going with this is, this decade has to move us in that direction where we can start to change some of these 
societal spending pattern so that we can invest in our future. And it's, and again, the analogies are simple, but profound. It's no different from investing in your home, whether it's plumbing or wiring or whatever it is. And if you ignore it forever, all of a sudden you got five things you got to solve at once. And this all amounts to what's the proper motivation to move through these barriers that we have now in value-based payment. Not that value-based payment is going to solve everything wrong with our society, but if it can have an impact on how much money we spend on healthcare, then I think there's there's motivation. So then you start to get into some of the things that Francois talked about. And I, I happen to pull ahead of this, the number of alternative payment models and advanced APMs right now that are under the oversight of CMS, and it's over 50 of them. And, and that's just the public side. <laughs> that doesn't count the different experiments that are going on in the private side. So we do need to move from this period of experimentation. And, and, in, and in one way, it's okay that we've had all those because it's been this intense period of experimentation. But I think we've learned enough to be able to start to settle on how do we move from experimentation to honing in on um, a more limited number of models that health systems can rally around. And just the the way the question is posed about balancing between fee-for-service and value-based payment canoes, even that presents the problem because as long as we're expecting both types of providers, hospitals and physicians and all the other providers, to do that balancing act like they do have a foot in each of those canoes, it's going to be a real challenge. And human nature would suggest that people stay on the more safe side. And the reality is we are, and I, I do believe this, that we're uh, an industry that uh, can shift. If we just have the right set of incentives, we will change to match up with the incentives that are provided. So. I hope, Eric, that you're right in the sentiment behind your question that we are moving into a decade where, where it's going to be real. One of the things that we'll get into today is I think there's tremendous profit margin available for better care management. And so we can get into that as we go. Gentlemen, let's talk about bundled payments. Nine years ago, CMS introduced the first generation of its comprehensive bundled payments for care improvement or BPCI initiative. And there's been widespread participation among hospitals and conveners. The most recent CMS evaluation indicated that there were fee-for-service savings of approximately 800 million from BPCI Model 2 and 139 million from Model 3, based on comparisons of patient-level outcomes for participants to non-participants. This suggests that BPCI Classic was financially beneficial overall to the Medicare program with respect to utilization patterns and related cost savings. Francois, you are the preeminent expert when it comes to designing these episode of care programs and Signify Health is a leading company in episode of care payment programs and a convener in Medicare's advanced BPCI program. Francois, based on your extensive experience in this space in this recent report that Signify was a part of, can you provide our listeners with your perspective on what is coming next with bundled payments? And Joe, given the irrefutable data that illustrates the potential of bundles, providing a financial incentive to coordinate care, how should hospitals and physician groups be thinking about BPCIA in terms of their financial strategy and operations planning? Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going to really engage Joe 
in answering these questions together because we both started our journey in this almost together, uh, I think probably a decade ago, Joe, when you were the chief financial officer at, at Spectrum Health. And I was uh, working on trying to stand up a pilot uh, for a, a bundle payment, episodic care payment program that was really focused primarily on managing patient conditions and trying to optimize those patient conditions. And we're going through the implications of the program. I, I remember it well. And it was the classic uh, change management kind of a program. We had people from multiple disciplines at the table. So at Spectrum Health, we had a health plan. So we had health plan representatives at the table. Of course, we employed a significant number of physicians. And so we had physician representation at the table. The actual, the, some of these were primary care docs themselves. I and a few others on the hospital or health system side. And then uh, Francois and a few folks on his side to, you know, to help us with modeling and, and understanding all this. And so we had a series of these meetings and we're talking about how if we reduce the amount of complications, how that would change the economics uh, on a condition specific basis. And it was like, there was one day and I said, wait a minute, Francois, you're taking these, you know, if we reduce the complications, you know, and we're sharing the gain from that, well, I'm sitting here as a hospital, you're not sharing any of that with me. <laughs> I said, listen, if you want us to engage in this, you can't expect me to have a program that reduces our revenues and that cut us in on some of the benefit of that reduced spending. And it was one of those aha moments, where I think for all of us that just said, if you're going to go down this path, you have to create financial incentives that include everybody that's at the table. And I think that's the moment you were referring to. Yeah. And you have to recast essentially the way in which the organizations think about margin and marginal revenue, uh, meaning margin on a given patient from improving their outcomes and marginal revenue. And, and the reason we're bringing this up is because when you look at the existing Medicare bundle payment program, it actually doesn't address this at all. And it made it as a result relatively easy for provider organizations, in particular hospitals and health systems to participate in because you initiate the episode at the point of admission. So there is an admission, there's no loss of revenue from a loss of bed day. And what you're then engaging the delivery system in is making dis more rational decisions about where the patient ends up post-acute and the extent to which you reduce the intensity of post-acute care. You more preferentially uh, help the patient in their homes, which most individuals prefer anyway. You create and generate savings from those programs. Uh, which then generate better margin on a per patient basis for the institutions, but without threatening really any of their top line revenue. We really sat down and thought about what ought to be the next generation of these risk contracts. And one of our conclusions was that for what is today the Medicare BPCIA program, try to make it more permanent because the extent to which a system like Spectrum or any other system in the country is making better decisions around post-acute care, why stop at only the discharges that you are including in a voluntary program like the bundle payment program, why not extend it to all discharges and effectively give the organization an opportunity to improve their margin across all their discharges as opposed to just a portion? 
But then going back to really the roots of uh, where Joe and I started, why not extend these programs to ambulatory care settings, to conditions, but understanding that as you do that, there is going to be this inherent tension between optimizing patient care in ambulatory care settings and the potential impact that that can have on reducing the acuity of the patient or acute events, which of course reduces hospitalizations. And so clearly from the employers in the country, the Medicare, uh, all the payers, the ones who really pay the bills, that focus on helping generate better clinical outcomes for the patient and better financial outcomes overall, because you're reducing the volume of care that's linked to, and call them broadly, deficiencies in care management is a good thing for the system writ large and for patients certainly, but that gets to the inherent challenge for the delivery system and the hospitals and the health systems in, in particular. And, you know, Joe, from your perspective and those of the CFOs, how has that mindset kind of shifted given the work around ACOs and everything else, which is a lot more population health-based? Yeah. You know, I would say the capabilities of health systems is far beyond the mindset part. There's still a resistance to change. And I'd say the predominant sentiment, I had, and I have some examples that are different from this, where there's some really progressive CFOs and some really progressive health systems. But the, I would say the predominant opinion, because of all this variation and all this uncertainty and the and I'm sure we'll get into some of the data elements in this, there's a feeling of a black box. It, you know, to be honest, if you ask the CFO, would you rather jump into a value-based payment arrangement or would you rather stick with fee-for-service? He or she would undoubtedly probably choose fee-for-service. Now, at the risk of sounding critical, I, you know, I think that's a natural human reaction to that. But I think the capabilities, to the other part of your question, the capabilities of health systems is much different and much broader today than it was when we had this experiment, which again was a little over 10 years ago. Most health systems have invested in the entire continuum of care to prepare for this moment, to prepare for being able to take care of the entire episode of care. And so the part of this question was this irrefutable data you know, quote unquote, you know, irrefutable data that illustrates the potential doesn't always correlate into what the value-based payment models that are in existence or either in their design or the execution of those. And that's where we need to start making progress. I, there is irrefutable data about the, the benefit. And, and I like to think of it as there's available profit margin based on better management of care. And these health systems are geared up to do that. It's almost like we just need that. What's that last final push to get us over the edge to more uniformly actively manage to this? And part of this comes from the attitude of the health system's executive team. In fact, I would make an argument that might be the most important variable in really moving this needle. I can give you example after example after example of health systems that have made this attitudinal shift to embrace risk, to embrace that change, to change systems to embrace that and reaping the financial benefits of that. I can give you examples of those that don't. And so part of that attitudinal change, I think is core to making the societal change that we need. Yeah, and, and, and that really leads 
kind of back to your earlier question about what should Medicare focus on over the next decade. Hopefully, Medicaid follows suit, and certainly the private sector is much more tightly focused around a core set of APMs. But this combination of total cost of care, which has, to Joe's point, encouraged the adoption of population health platforms, of uh, tools and information systems that really look at the patient and the total population and the care continuum in a very different perspective than was done 10 years ago. Uh, So the combination of those programs with the more focused episode of care programs with a bundle payment around an episode of care really create that important dynamic. And, And the more you dilute that because you're adding a number of little point APMs here and there, the more difficult it is to make decisions around that organizational shift. So I think there is good evidence on what works. And now it's about concentrating efforts in APMs that have that evidence and helping the delivery system make the right decisions around resource allocation to optimize their organizational structures. Let's talk a bit about the organizational shift, you know, and the the resource allocation that's happening also is juxtaposed to the the progression of risk-based contracts. And a lot of health systems are thinking about this magic number, like this single tipping point where all of a sudden, once you get a percentage of your payer portfolio that's based in risk, that all of a sudden your culture is going to have hardwired within it a capability or a a mindfulness around value-based care. Can both of you speak a little bit about that? Is there this single tipping point that actually exists with regard to this magical revenue percentage, or is that just a fallacy? No, it's definitely not a fallacy, but it is a different answer when you're a large health system than if you're a regional or suburban single facility hospital, single hospital, or whether you're a multi-specialty group practice or a single specialty group practice. And on, on the larger systems, I mean, back to the encounter of a decade ago, what Joe's reaction as the CFO of Spectrum really hit home from someone who was trying on behalf of employers to kind of implement something that seemed like it was common sense. And then you get hit with, well, the other common sense side of, uh, wait a second, this creates a dilemma for us as a health system. And in fact, it, it prompted then our working together on you know what we ended up by calling the CFO's dilemma, which is the recognition that as you start shifting a portion of your FIFA service revenue into contracts that are at risk, the effect of those risk contracts, especially if they're linked to optimizing outpatient care at the expense of hospitalizations, you are going to end up with an increase in margin per patient under your at-risk contracts, but your top-line revenue as a system is actually going to decrease and the margin that you make on that top line revenue meaning you know an inpatient stay is going to disappear and until you get to a certain critical point of risk contracts with associated margin per patient that can offset the decrease in the margin that you're generating from the lost incremental hospitalization, you are at a deficit as an organization. So that's really, really clear financially. 
And again, it's a different value prop when you're a single practice or even a multi-specialty group practice because you don't have that dilemma. So I would say that for folks who talk about the tipping point, the tipping point, you know, Joe can expand on this a lot better than I can. The tipping point is really a function of the shift in how your margin exists in your system and how you can allocate that on a fixed asset base, which, you know, Joe, for most systems is high and also is in many cases ladled with debt service that you can't just ignore. Yeah. So I think this tipping point question is an interesting one and it's um, probably more an academic question than it is one in reality. What I mean is it, to suggest that there's some one tipping point that applies, and this is to Francois's point, that applies across this massively you know, different health system you know, geographically around the country is an oversimplification. So I thought I would answer this by talking about what did I think about as a CFO as we were doing that experiment with bundled payment with Francois? And I think this applies to, you know, again, all these years later to the exact way that CFOs are thinking about this today. If I create a some kind of a value-based payment arrangement with, you know, payer X, and I could create care payment models that would address incentives and that would create margin within that payer that I could share in that would be great. Now, if that payer is 20% of my business and the other 80% doesn't share in that same type of incentive, I remember thinking, well, heck, I'm just generating a windfall for these other payers. <laughs> and right. as long as we have this variation out there, I couldn't help but think about that. And so what the CFO's dilemma then is, do you really go for it and try to convince as many payers as possible to adopt the same or similar levels of incentives. And therefore, even though you have different contracts, you're essentially working on the same care model changes uh, or not. I mean, and if you can get to a, you know, in economies of scale kind of thing, if you can get to X number, X percent of your revenues, that would be in essence, based on very similar incentives, then you in essence, get that tipping point. That's different for every organization based on their makeup of and the relationships in their community. So to suggest that there's one tipping point, whether it's 30 to 70 or whatever, I think is a is an oversimplification. I think it's interesting to study that on a macro level, but it doesn't play well in the CFO suite. The CFO will be just doing very specific modeling by payer to try to figure out is there a profit margin at the end of the day. Yeah, and that that free rider effect is a is a real challenge for any provider organization, and that holds true across the board. Because if I'm a single specialty practice, and I am now fundamentally changing the way in which I'm approaching patient care, and I'm doing that on behalf of a payer and their alternative payment model. Every other payer is also going to benefit from that fundamental change in, in my organization. And unless they're engaging with me in that similar alternative payment model, they're free riding. And one might say, well, that's okay, but <laughs> no, it, it, it actually isn't because the level of investment that's required for that re-engineering is not insignificant. And so back to 
the decision making of the person who's in charge of the practice or the person who's in charge of, of, of the health system, if I don't get a larger portion of uh, my revenue base engaged in a similar alternative payment model, however attractive one might, that payment model might be, it, it's a dangerous value proposition. So it goes back to, you got to thin these things out. You can't have too many of them. You can't have too many flavors of them. And to the extent possible, there should be a lot more uh, cross-payer collaboration so that uh, the delivery system has a clearer signal. You know, at the risk of even making this conversation more complicated in terms of change management, I think it's even oversimplification to suggest that even if the the insurance company, i.e. payer, even if they're in sync on this, if the business community, which some people equate to the payer, you know, in a self-insured plan, if the business community doesn't come along with taking an honest look at benefit design, then we're still swimming upstream. The reality is that and I've said this a zillion times, and it's easy to say, but I think it's absolutely true. You know, we've all contributed to get us to this point. <laughs> we've all done the, you know, the payers, the insurance companies, the the provider side, the meaning the hospitals and the docs, the business community, and then we as a society, we've all contributed to get to this point, and we all need to be aware of these solutions to make that change. So apply that to value-based payment, even if a health insurance company and a provider that included both physicians and uh, and the hospital side and all the other providers that go along with it, even if they were in sync on a value arrangement, if the benefit plan design doesn't support that, then again, they're swimming upstream on that. And then that's yet another reason why some of this change takes so long is you have to have all the parties at the table to try to move to this different model. Well, I'm just thinking about the business community. And that's a great point. And there's this flashpoint. I think that's happening now where employers are now more boldly committed to benefit redesign and making those tough decisions. And they're thinking about cost containment. And we have a pandemic going on where many employers are dealing with economic setbacks where healthcare as one of the biggest items on the balance sheet can no longer be ignored. There really has to be a bold commitment to this benefit redesign. And I'm just thinking about how hospitals have consistently been using their commercial contracts to spot the margin on Medicare and Medicaid, where they're losing money on those contracts and these big commercial contracts are able to fill the void. How do you see the business environment kind of being reshaped right now where hospitals are no longer going to be able to have a financial management strategy that's really dependent on these cross subsidies from the business community to spot their margin on Medicare and Medicaid. How do you see the payer mix shifting or the profit margin changing to where investment and value-based care really has to be something that is a true commitment? I think there are market forces in in all elements of, uh, of the healthcare industry, even though roughly half of the revenues come from public payers, Medicare, Medicaid. I still think there are market forces. And where I'm going with that is that I think we're getting to a point where both the business community and the public payers are just sick and tired of paying more and more for healthcare. And the the strategy of shifting costs to the individual through higher co-pays and deductibles, you can make an argument, is probably getting near the end of its course. And so those market forces are pushing, they're going to push back. And to your question, then the business community, 
is sick and tired of these costs going up and they're going to push back. To date, I could make a very strong argument that they have not played very well in this space. They've just been pushing on price and haven't really wanted to get into the dirty work of benefit plan design because you know nobody wants to make their employees unhappy. And, and so that's where I get to, we all have to contribute to this. Now, there's some really good examples of the business community that have had long-term success. You know, there's this story about the Rosen Hotels down in um, Central Florida. And a lot of times what I hear is that, oh, the business community can't really push change because they don't have enough covered lives to make a difference. Well, there's an organization, they got, you know, several hotels, you know, decent size employer, they get several thousand, but not enough to move things on a health insurance PMPM basis. And for 20 years now, Harris Rosen and his group down there have really focused on taking care of their employees, keeping them healthy, structuring their health care plan, putting money into primary care. And I got to tell you, their results, both from a an employee health perspective and a financial perspective are extraordinary. And it shows that with the right attitude, the business community can shift the needle. And so it's just another example where, again, we all need to be at the table trying to resolve this. And if we try to do this without the business community coming along, then it's going to be that much more difficult. Part of it is is it done in a battle-like environment where the business community is just angry and then casting blame on? Or is it done where the business community works with the insurance company that works with the provider community in developing models that work? And I would make a very strong argument that if the business community were to adapt that kind of an attitude, and if the attitude was right on the other two parts, the insurance part and uh, on the provider side, we could make these changes and take advantage of this tremendous profit margin that's available by reducing the cost, for example, of chronic care. Yeah, and, and Joe, I actually wanted to also not expand on this, but probe a little bit because we see in the small group market increasingly employers shifting to reference-based pricing and uh, essentially not worrying about whether or not there's an existing network and de facto paying at the percent of Medicare, which could potentially then lead to uh, balance billing of the plan members and effectively a loss of whatever that difference is for the provider because the likelihood of collecting from the members is, is increasingly low. And tied to that is the increase in the cost shifting that has occurred over the years has massively increased the volume of deductibles, massively increased the size of the cost sharing all the way up to the out-of-pocket max. And my understanding, and I'd really like your input on this, is that the volume of consumer collectibles, uh, meaning the amount of money that provider organizations are now faced with in collecting uh, uh, from consumers has risen significantly over the years. So when people talk about differentials and fee schedules between Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial insurance, yes, there are significant differences, but part of that difference is actually compressed by the volume of dollars that are not collectible directly from consumers. Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things that health systems calculate is the actual yield on a payer-specific basis. And so if a payer, let's just use round numbers just for ease of calculation. If a payer is paying 60% of charges, and that's the result of whatever payment methodology they use. It could be DRGs and 
APTs and all that, or it could be, you know, any other mechanism. But if the result of that is that, you know, they're paying 60% of charges, and then another one that has the same contract, but there's a propensity for those covered lives, the people in those covered under that benefit plan are not paying their coinsurance and deductibles and the yield. So you take that away that on the coinsurance and deductible side, maybe that yield of 60 goes down to, you know, 55 or, but there's some percentage point that's calculated to calculate the, the real net yield on a payment contract. And it does bring into play the success or lack thereof of collecting those patient responsibilities. Joe Francois, I want to ask you about the success of implementing the models that organizations engage in. At the ACLC, we're intent in our belief that success in value-based care begins and ends with the competency of the team. So I want you to think about and respond to how an organization builds the operational capacity to execute on a value agenda that's in alignment with the vision and strategy of the C-suite. And if an organization has a good operational and strategic plan, but it still fails in the delivery of that model, is it the inherent flaw of the payment model design or the implementation that often causes the problem? I'm going to go back to, I think it's even more basic than that. I think it comes back to attitude. We recently highlighted a system, I think it was Baptist Health in Louisville, Kentucky, and and we had a conversation with their CFO, a guy by the name of Steve Oglesby, and he said that their commitment to value-based care and payment starts with the system's vision to embrace change. And to me, that that spoke volumes. I mean, you know, I think if Once you get that, and that's the conversation around the C-suite, then throughout the organization, then you're going to start to focus on systemness, and you're going to start to focusing on developing care models that address wellness and chronic care management. You're going to embrace change because you're going to move forward on education and engaging all stakeholders and all the things that's necessary in change management. That all starts with attitude. And so there are examples of that um, around the country that, that suggest that that can work. And I'm not an expert on behavioral economics, but I will tell you that I do know, I've heard enough from folks that study this, that the pain of losing is about twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining. And so what that correlates to me to is it's easier to stay in a, in for many places, stay in a fee-for-service mindset So that change of attitude has got to come from the top and it's got to be filled with substance and data and, you know, people around the table really moving it forward. So you do it in a scientific and comprehensive way, but you're never going to get to that without that movement from the top. And and I would look, say that you've got a lot of APMs whose design is fundamentally flawed. And in fact, I'm struck often by how in the world any organization can agree to the terms and conditions of those alternative payment models and the design of the program as it exists. And and so you can effectively get some degree of failure or even complete failure of an alternative payment model. And as a result of the organization that's participating in it, even if they've done their best because of fundamental flaws in the design. So it is important to adhere to a core set of principles in the design of alternative payment models and then do the best possible from those who are implementing it on the administrative side to ensure that there is transparency, clarity, and appropriate variables and parameters tuned in 
because otherwise you are, you're stacking the, and, and it goes back to my earlier comment about the differences in inferences that you can make when you're evaluating an APM on the implementation of that APM versus the validity uh, of the APM itself. And there are a lot of alternative payment models and providers that participate in them that fail because the implementation and the design were deeply flawed. Yeah, I want to, Francois, I want to pick up on that transparency issue because one of the things I've been hearing from CFOs recently, and I will preface this statement with, before you shoot the messenger on this one, (laughs) remember I said that we've all contributed to this and we all need to solve it. And so not to suggest that health systems aren't a barrier to transition to value-based payment because sometimes they are. But one of the comments I've heard a lot recently, and I've I've asked around to see if I could kind of corroborate some of this with some others, but it's that a lack of transparency and even how some of these value-based payment model incentives are calculated or how the risk is, is determined and calculated and that it goes into a black box and the CFOs of actually some of the largest health systems in our country that I've talked to are frustrated because they'll be moving along on a value-based payment arrangement and you know they, they think that they're going to be in an, in an incentive position, and lo and behold, at the end of the year, you know the calculation comes out and they're not, and they can't figure out why, and that's a real frustration to them. And and again, if that happens, their natural reaction is going to be, I am not going to do risk sharing. I am going to just stick with fee for service and screw that risk sharing because I can't predict what the result will be during the time that the risk period is uh, is underway. So that transparency is is an important part of this as well. Uh, It is striking to see how many payers go to providers with, hey, here's the deal, but we can't tell you (laughs) where it came from or how we arrived at the number because we're self-censoring ourselves, you know, which is ridiculous. I'd like to shift our conversation now to hospital price transparency. And Francois, in 2014, you served on the HFMA Price Transparency Task Force, and I wanted to read a quote that was part of that final report that you gave. And you said that the ability for consumers, whether insured or not, to have easy access to meaningful information about the price of healthcare services and the total expected price of medical episodes or events has become a national priority for good reason. And the share of medical expenses paid by individual consumers is at an all-time high and projected to increase, and that consumers, you said, should be able to know the price of any service or product purchased before becoming liable to pay the bill. So here we are, gentlemen, we're seven years later from the task force that took place in 2014, and there's this promise with the new CMS hospital price transparency rule that went into effect. And this new rule is important because for the first time, it requires hospitals to list their negotiated prices online for all services, and hospitals are required to publish a user-friendly display of their prices for 300 specific shoppable services that include things like CT scans and MRIs and patient visits, blood tests, and even some elective procedures. And in the ACLC and you know what we're reading in the industry right now, I mean, it's readily apparent that hospitals do not want to do this. And the American Hospital Association even went 
uh, to fight the rule in court and their appeals failed. And now, you know, that rule has gone into effect in January. So, Joe, what was HFMA's position on the hospital price transparency rule? And now that it has been passed, do you think it's actually going to make any difference whatsoever? And Francois, if we continue to lack the price transparency needed to fully unleash consumerism in healthcare, how will this impact the value movement? Well, Eric, you might regret asking that question because this has been an issue that I have been passionate about for many, many years. It goes back to before I was the CEO of HFMA. Some of HFMA's activities go back to 2006 and 2007 when we issued our first consumerism reports. And we actually issued a report back then on hospital pricing. And along the lines of trying to move the consumerism down the consumerism agenda. So it, we at HFMA have a long and uh, both organizational and then with me a personal passion on transparency. And so the question about our position on hospital price transparency rule, we are essentially a politically agnostic organization. And by that, we don't have a lobbying arm and you know we're not trying to influence legislation that's being created or whatever. But we do have an advocacy role. And so we did issue a comment letter on this particular price transparency rule that essentially said it's directionally correct, but this particular rule doesn't help because it really doesn't address what consumers need. And if you if the argument is about what consumers need in a consumerism mindset, this doesn't help. So, you know, there's a fundamental flaw in this whole transparency debate and that, frankly, we have been trying to fix. And the fundamental flaw is, and there's a long historical reason that we got to this point. We have a, a gross charge structure in this country where the gross charges are exceedingly high. Organizations really don't get paid those gross charges. There's a function that's part of a calculation. So then when you get into these transparency rules that have taken place over these last several years, they're sitting on top of this severely flawed mechanism that starts with these gross charges. And quite frankly, CMS has to fix that. In our opinion, if they really want to get after the kind of transparency that we've been talking about for 15 years. So we are huge advocates for price transparency. I don't think this rule helps consumers and there's all the complexity that comes with it in terms of how to access accurate price information, how to access out-of-pocket information. It doesn't come from a simple putting either gross charges or payment rates out on a website. We don't think that's the, the solution that really drives the consumerism agenda. Yeah, and look, I agree with with Joe on all these points, and in particular, the lack of usefulness of the information that's being currently posted on a variety of uh, hospital and health system websites. And it's not just the confusion in interpreting the information, but it's also the confusion in being able to find it in the first place. There's a second aspect to this which will become effective in 22 and 23, and that aims to have corresponding rules applied to payers and employers who don't have grandfathered plans. And I actually think that that one may be a lot more important to the extent that it provides consumers with relevant information. And that goes to the heart of what Joe mentioned, which is what's relevant to a consumer is not simply how much 
an event, not just a single service, but an event is going to cost in aggregate, but also some decent estimate of what that event is going to cost for me out of pocket. And only really the employers or the payer can do that. Now, you know, payers have had uh, price transparency tools and a lot of employers have had price transparency tools for a while, but they are incomplete, almost all of them because they show you individual services. They don't show you full episodes or health events. And that's a deterrent to consumers being able to take action on the information and make rational decisions. The challenge with the price transparency rule on the facility side is that it really does only give you a portion of the picture because facilities use their own billing data. And again, to Joe's point, often on the basis of charge that charges that are deeply flawed for a variety of historical reasons, but also it's an incomplete picture because if I'm, you know, a perfect example is a woman having a baby, you go on a hospital's website looking for delivery costs. Well, the only thing the hospital is going to be able to report unless they're adding in estimates for their own employed OBs to the extent they even have any are the facility charges. Well, the facility charges are not uh, the totality of the costs involved in that maternity case. You have the, the facility charges and the professional services associated to the delivery. And typically there's also a newborn involved and that may include some cost sharing. So it is a very, very incomplete picture. However, all that being said, access to pricing information in the United States has actually become a lot more difficult in the past 10 to 15 years than it was then. And, and these executive orders and associated regulations are intended to try to correct that. It is striking for us, we're trying to accelerate the movement to value, the race to value, that the ability to have access to the critical information that will allow you to make value-based decisions is consistently being blocked. And it's blocked oftentimes by payers and it's blocked by others in the system. And it, how in the world can you, if you're a provider, participate in a value-based payment arrangement if the organization that's bringing you that APM refuses to disclose the prices that are underlying uh, the target price for the payment model on the basis of trade secrecy. Well, you can't make decisions if you don't know what to base those decisions on. And if you're an employer trying to stand up uh, episode of care payment program and negotiate directly with providers, you refused access to your own claims data on the basis that it's, it's the payer's intellectual property. So we're in this alternative universe where on the one end, we're talking about the race to value and a fundamental tenet of which is having transparency in prices and use of services. And then the blocking of that, systematic blocking of that information by a variety of organizations in that same industry that's trying to race to value. But not everyone is in this race. And I think the debate around transparency is a perfect example of where the fault lines exist in this race to value. Yeah. If it wasn't a multi-trillion dollar question that we're you know, <laughs> bantering around here, some of these examples would be funny. I mean, it's amazing when we, that lack of data or expecting people to be part of a contract without giving them their core underlying data same thing with, with individuals, to expect them to make decisions without the core underlying data. Again, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. You know, what I think is interesting about this, and this is why I think that the 
the direction of price transparency is again directionally correct, but you know the details being flawed in that there's a lot of anxiety on both the insurance side and the provider side about the existing payment level of uh, transparency. And I, I have to laugh about this. And I, and I only laugh because I don't sit in one of those organizations anymore, by the way. I, <laughs> as an association, I can sit back and watch some of this. But what I hear from the insurance companies is, oh my gosh, if we have to disclose these payments, it's going to be a race to the top. Everybody's going to push these prices that we're paying the providers to the top of the list. And I turn around and, and I am dead serious about this and as literal as I could be. I have the exact same conversation with a system CFO and they're saying, you guessed it. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a race to the bottom. You know, just the payment level transparency, all of a sudden we're going to be pushed to get paid much less. And the reality is that those are market forces that will take place. And that's okay because the markets will bounce around and you'll see some gyrations. Right now, what happens is there are data sets that compare prices from provider to provider, but those prices have been established without the effects of markets because there's been this lack of transparency. It's going to take a few years, but those market forces will work and prices will get aligned and there will be market forces and some organizations will charge less for something than others. So that's one element to this. The other part of this that, again, that you know Francois addressed was the absolute necessity to get to a transparency level meaningful to the total episode of care. And he raised this OB example. When we did our first transparency report, and this was one of those multidiscipline, you know, several organizations around the table. And this was, I don't know, six, seven years ago. One of the people that we invited into our conversation was a, a patient. And it was a young woman who, this was before the ACA. She was between jobs and therefore didn't have insurance. She got pregnant. And she was, there was an article written about her, this in the New York Times. Her issue was that she was calling around trying to get both price and quality information because she was going to have to pay for this out of pocket. And of course, the New York Times series of articles was not very complimentary of the entire healthcare system in that endeavor. So we invited her into our work group as we put together our price transparency report. And it was interesting, you know, we'd be all these industry people, we'd be talking with our acronyms and we'd talk about the barriers and the anxieties <laughs> and, and this young lady. And it was hilarious. She actually brought her two week old baby to the very first meeting that we had that she attended. You know, she's at the end of the table and I can still picture it. One of those long tables with all of us suited up, you know, and she was down at the end saying, um, hey, I don't know exactly what you guys are all talking about, but here's what I needed. And then she just stated just very clearly, I needed to know how much was this going to cost me out of my pocket for the entire episode. And I wanted to know what the quality was of the providers involved. And it grounded us to remember that's what patients need. And I think that's uh, still lacking on a lot of the rules and tools that are out there today. Joe, in this next question, I want to start with a quote from you. You said, HFMA is politically agnostic, but I think we're going to end up in the long term with Medicare Advantage for All. There are elements that would keep the right happy, market forces it would allow for choice. In each market, you could choose between multiple health plans. In a Medicare Advantage for All environment, 
we would focus on the purchase of health insurance that fits what consumers need. So Joe, let's talk about whether or not this is a viable policy option for creating financing structure for our healthcare industry. It seems to me that Medicare Advantage for All could be a good starting point for a bipartisan discussion on creating a new framework for the US health system. Unlike the higher profile Medicare for All approach, a Medicare Advantage for All approach would have several advantages such as broad political support, a capitation system that allows for a variety of benefits, greater efficiency and patient satisfaction, and a better emphasis on social determinants of health. It really seems to me that this is the way we're heading since the new direct contracting model is using many of the same levers as Medicare Advantage. It feels to me like it's opening the door for this as a policy option. Well, this might be an example of be careful what you say because somebody might hold you accountable to it. But I did say that, but I meant it. And uh, I have to preface my answer with, these are my personal opinions. Again, HFMA itself as an organization, we're, we're politically agnostic. We don't, we don't get into you know, a lot of the political action committee things. And so we would, this would not be an issue that we would be out in front trying to lobby saying, hey, this is where the direction should be. These are my personal opinions. That said, I can make a very strong argument for Medicare Advantage for All as being a really solid solution for where we need to go. And now at the most basic level, you could look at it and say that it, it has elements that uh, both the right and left would like. And, and of course, that means that there are elements that both the right and left would dislike. But the parts that the left would like is that we would get to universal coverage. We would get to, and, and again, in, in all of this, I have to keep in mind, there are so many details that would need to be worked out. And I, don't, and I have the luxury of being able to opine on this at a pretty global level. Even that one, like who is the everyone that's covered? I, I'm not going to get into that level. That would have to be debated. And you know, is it citizenship and all those kinds of things? So just set that aside, the, the complexity for a second. If you got to resolving you know, the, the issue that we have today is that we have 30 million or so citizens still in this country, even after the Affordable Care Act and the machinations of what's happened with that since it was enacted, that's still a problem. And so you'd get to universal coverage. You would also get to having part of the Affordable Care Act is the, are these marketplaces. Well, the reality is that generally speaking, there's very few people that really need to take advantage of that individual market. And we don't get the, the real level of economies of scale, the size of risk pools that are necessary for insurance plans to be in geographies. So there's too many places where there's too limited number of choices of plans. Well, if everybody's covered under this mechanism, then there would be incentives for insurance companies to actually have products in that marketplace which leads into the benefit to the right-hand side of, of this would be it provides choice for us as citizens or as people in this country. And a Medicare Advantage for All, if I were, and I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I, I could look at Grand Rapids and I would have a choice of three, four, five, six, whatever different number of insurance companies that would offer a Medicare Advantage for All product. And they would be competing with each other. And that would be desirable for the, politically the right-hand side of this. So I could make a strong argument that it creates market forces there. Those insurance companies would be competing for my business based on benefit plan structure, what it would cost me, what their administrative efficiency, things like apps and customer service and all those things that currently Medicare Advantage plans 
are competing on. It would just be that that would be a competition for all the population. And then the last advantage of that is it would enable health insurance companies. And I would could make an argument right now that they should have this incentive to do this today. And there's another discussion of why they haven't done this as aggressively to date as perhaps they should. But if, if they're getting funded from the federal government for a, and a Medicare Advantage for All, they would have the incentive to not only be market-based in terms of their offerings and, and provide the best product that they could for me as a consumer, but they're going to want to manage the care more effectively to keep me healthier so that I'm not incurring uh, big catastrophic claims. So long story short, there's a lot of complexity that would go into that. I do believe that a Medicare Advantage for All solution would work. And I think there's enough money in the system today to be able to fund it. And just by managing care better and getting back into what we talked about earlier, and that is the profit margin that's available for better management of care, primarily chronic conditions. So long answer to your question, but I do think that model would work. So I'm going to bifurcate a bit from Joe on this one and agree on one side, which is, and harkens back to a point you made earlier about the cross-subsidization of uh, public sector programs with private sector insurance and how providers you know, modulate their fee schedules to compensate with one from the other. And I, I, I do think that when you look at the fee schedules, in particular in Medicaid, there is a disconnect between the underlying costs of producing care for a Medicaid beneficiary and the level of reimbursement. And those level of reimbursements have nothing to do with the managed care organizations more than statutorily what ends up by being allowed in a given state based on, in many instances, budgetary constraints. And it's increasingly problematic and we think it's going to become even more so post-COVID when you do have some big, big uh, public sector funding gaps uh, because of, of lower tax revenues. Um, so having much more of a consistent fee schedules, funding mechanism, et cetera, for Medicaid and Medicare, I think makes a huge amount of sense for the entire country. I mean, we understand where the origin of both programs came from, but at the end of the day, they represent a little over 50% of all of the patients uh, that, that are being, and certainly all of the, the funding in the country for healthcare. So why not combine it into a, a single source? Uh, to me, certainly makes uh, degrees of sense. Again, to try to reduce that potential for uh, trying to offset prices in the private sector with public sector payers. But beyond that, I, I certainly have uh, not given up at all on the potential for the private sector to act as the fulcrum for significant uh, delivery system, benefit design, and even payment reform. In fact, I'm always nervous about the significant challenge that we would have in advancing any of those three elements if you ended up with something like Medicare for All. Because when you look at the history of payment reform, benefit design reform, delivery system reform, it has historically come from the private sector, then some of those best practices or some of those models get adopted by Medicare, which spreads it even further. But we see even today in what CMMI is doing on payment reform, that the creativity has almost run dry. And on benefit reform, let's not even, you know, there is none. 
So I, I do think there is a role for both the public and the private sector, but programs like the direct contracting model that CMS is going is, has launched, or I guess is launching more or less today, does offer a, a very, very interesting basin for uh, testing a, a lot of the interaction between payment models that exist in pockets uh, across the country. And why? Because you are uh, essentially delegating full prospective per member per month payment to a risk-bearing entity who then has a responsibility of really working with a delivery system to think about and figure out how to improve care, improve outcomes, reduce waste, all the things that we've been speaking about over the past hour. And while there is no benefit design element really to uh, that program, there's a lot of potential innovation. And I think what we'll find is that without the right levels of, of support administratively, organizationally, others, it's going to be difficult for the delivery system in itself to get this done. And I think that starts creating some very interesting policy implications on what happens next. How do you approach this? What does it mean in terms of Medicare Advantage plans for all? Or is there an ability for delivery systems to do that when they have risk-bearing entities and delegated payment? How does that potentially apply to the private sector? Can you make that work in the private sector and accelerate it with a further impetus with uh, benefit design and back to Joe's point of uh, earlier that today you've got this disconnect between benefit design and, and payment models. And I don't see the federal government having any ability uh, to really innovate on benefit design, but I do see the private sector having tremendous impetus for doing benefit design reform. And I think we'll see a lot more of that over the next year and a half. So I'm really confident that the, the pull and push of private and public sector focused on the right levels of innovation um, is really the way to drive policy change and uh, lasting reform in, in the United States. Yeah, see, I think we agree more than you think, Francois. I'm sitting here listening to your answer, thinking that you're making my point probably better than I was. I, I am talking about a public-private partnership. My view of this would be, what I'm talking about is taking the employer out of the mix but it doesn't take the private side out of the mix. The benefit plan design and the payment reforms, that would still happen between payers and providers. It's just that that funding wouldn't come from the business community and this highly fragmented environment that we have today that leads to cost shifting and this hidden tax because of quote underpayments from the public payers and, and getting that back on the private side. That's the part that would be taken away, but there would still be market influences designing benefit plans and designing payment methodologies between these private insurance companies that are getting funding from the federal government and the provider community. And it's that complex private-public partnership that would, again, it would drive everything from payment levels to benefit design and everything in between. Gentlemen, this has been a fantastic conversation today. We're so grateful for your time. It's truly been enjoyable listening to, to you converse with each other and share your thoughts and ideas. I'd love to get, as we wrap up today, your comments on how our listeners can learn more about you and your organizations and the work you're doing and, and any other final comments you have about the show today. Thanks for um, having us. Francois is a longtime friend of mine, and we've had many, many conversations, um, many laughs, as you could tell during this one, but also some 
serious discussions over time and with a sincere effort to try to move this industry forward. And so to be able to display that to some listeners has just been a real joy for me. And I have a tremendous respect for Francois. And so that was a lot of fun. In, in terms of how people can learn what HFMA is all about, you know, we're a you know, typical 501c3 type association, hfma.org. You know, we have individual and organizational memberships. We have guest memberships. People want to go on the website and check us out. We'd be thrilled for folks. I'd like to think of us as associations go in healthcare is pretty progressive. And I'm not talking about that in the political sense, but we're not afraid to think about a bold new future. And I think you'll see that as you access some of our content, both now and what's coming in the future. So really a joy to, to be able to be part of this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, and double ditto on my end and equally have the same level of deep respect for Joe and his ongoing mission and the work of uh, the HFMA, because it takes a tremendous amount of working with the field, understanding the challenges, educating decision makers, and giving them the tools that they need to face into the reality of the changes that are uh, coming in the industry and, and are upon us. And HFMA does an awesome job at that. You know, we are encouraging uh, anyone who wants to certainly follow us on LinkedIn. You can visit our blog on signifyhealth.com. Uh, we're also pretty active on Twitter. And look, this is a journey, uh, the race to value is a journey that uh, a lot of us are all in <laughs> without any reserve, without any hesitation. And I'm at Signify Health for a reason, and it's because Signify Health is all in in this race to value. And we'll try to continue to do our best to contribute to good models that are proven to be effective, that work collaboratively with provider organizations and help them succeed because we can't transform the U.S. healthcare delivery system without the delivery system.